following message is by Dr. Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Well, we've concluded the Saved series last week, and now we want to continue where we left off in the Gospel of Luke. And we'll continue on with Luke through the end of the year uh, and then into uh, the next year until, as I said, somewhere around later winter or maybe uh, early spring, we'll break again out of Luke to do a series on what we call spiritual formation and the spiritual disciplines, which will basically sort of pave the way for the discipleship program that we want to roll out in 2016. Uh, and so where we are right now in the Gospel of Luke is chapter 18. I sort of debated about whether I was going to preach on verses 1 to 8 of chapter 18 because I've actually preached two times on this passage already since I've been pastor here at ICC. The first time was way back in 2010. That's when most of you were not here. And then I preached it again, though, just last May in 2010. 14. But as I was looking at the passage, there were some other thoughts that I had on it that I didn't really touch upon in the last two times that I preached it. Uh, And so I want to kind of take a look at it again. Luke chapter 18, verses 1 to 8. And it says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give them just, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Let's pray. Lord, without your word, we have no light to shine in the darkness. And so we ask for that light to come into our hearts. And in the midst of the chaos and confusion that often reigns within us, as we try to live by our own wisdom, we want to humbly submit to the wisdom that comes from you that is the one truth that we can rely on and depend on in this life. And so do that ministry within our hearts this morning, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there are basically two characters in the short story that Jesus tells. The first is a judge, and it turns out this judge is a pretty horrible man. Jesus tells us that he didn't fear God and he didn't respect people. In other words, the normal fears that would keep a person as powerful as a judge in line and check were not operative in this man's heart didn't really believe in a higher power. He didn't apparently believe in an afterlife, that there would be a day of reckoning, a day of judgment on his own life by how he ruled his own court. Not only that, but he didn't care what others thought of him. He didn't care about his reputation. 
in other words. In other words, he had no shame. He had no conscience. It's what in our modern psychological parlance, the truth is we may very well label a guy like this a sociopath. It's the kind of guy that you kind of look and you see dead eyes, right? And you realize there's no, there's no getting through a guy like this. Like, he pretty much does whatever he wants, when he wants it, how he wants to. There's really nothing you can do because he doesn't care about anything. In other words, Jesus is painting for us a picture of a truly frightening individual who wields enormous power in society and yet has a dead conscience and has no fear of any reprisal in the afterlife of standing before God. The second character in the story is a widow. She has been wronged in some way. We don't know exactly what way, but somehow been, she had this grievous wrong done against her. And so she comes to the judge's courtroom to seek justice. Women were not allowed in Jewish courtrooms. And so the fact that she was there is speaking something to us. If a woman wanted to sue somebody, she would find a male relative or neighbor or friend who would be willing to represent her in court. And he would go and plead the case of the woman. But even by the fact that she is there instead of a male relative, says this woman is utterly alone. Not only has she lost her husband, she's lost everybody. She's utterly isolated in her life. She is desperate. She is alone. In other words, Jesus is setting up the stage for an utterly hopeless situation. Anyone who would have heard this story in Jesus' days would have recognized the futility of her mission. No way. She's not going to get what she wants. Not in front of this judge. There is just no way. There is no hope for getting what she wants. She can't appeal to his sense of justice because he has no sense of justice. She can't appeal to his sense of honor because he has no honor. She can't appeal to compassion because his is a dead cold heart. He's heartless. He doesn't care. And so in desperation, she does the only thing within her power. She comes day after day after day nagging the guy, okay? Um, And maybe the first week or two, the judge tries to ignore her. If he just acts like she doesn't exist, maybe She'll just go away. But this woman is persistent. She does not give up. Day after day after day, she comes to the court and disturbs everyone, crying out, give me justice. Give me justice. Hear my case. Hear my plea. And so finally, the judge cannot take it anymore. He's sick of it. And so not out of compassion, not out of justice, not out of honor, but simply in order to shut her up, he says, fine, I'll hear your case and I'll rule in your favor. Now get out of my court and leave me alone. It says in verses 4 to 5, for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Now, taken at face value, it sounds like 
This is what Jesus is saying about prayer, isn't it? Is God is busy enough running the universe. And he has a lot more important things to do in his life than sit around worrying about your dumb little problems. And so here's the point is if you pray hard enough, if you pester him long enough, eventually you can wear God down. You can do it. It's not easy, but you can wear God down. And while he's trying to fix the ISIS crisis and world hunger, he will turn his attention to Chicago and listen to your puny little prayer, and he will help you out. He'll throw you a few scraps and fix your problems. And I think the truth is there are a lot of Christians who actually feel this way about prayer, right? Is I don't want to bother God with my little problems or... um, you know, like he's got better things to do than to deal with me. Um, but, you know, that's actually the exact opposite of the conclusion Jesus is trying to make by telling this story. Because Jesus is employing a teaching technique that he uses throughout the Gospels known as from lesser to greater. And the argument goes something like this. If the lesser situation is true, then the greater situation is far more true. In other words, what Jesus is telling us in this parable is this. If this desperate widow standing before a wicked judge can get what she wants by pestering him, how much more so can God's children, God's elect, get what they need through persistent prayer? That's the message Jesus is saying here. Now, I don't know if you've picked up on it, but there is the appearance of a contradiction to what Jesus is saying that I think is actually very key to understanding the whole mystery of prayer and what Jesus is trying to teach here. And the, con- the seeming contradiction lies in this. Right after he tells the parable in verses 6 to 8, he gives these further words of assurance. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. In other words, if it's true that the lesser is true and the greater is more true, then the whole point is we don't have to struggle like this widow who is desperate coming before a wicked judge because your Father in heaven knows what you need and He longs to give it to you. And so here is the reassurances. Don't sweat it. God is going to act on your behalf and He's going to act speedily, quickly. That seems to be the implication of the teaching is take heart. Don't worry. The answer is coming, and it's coming fast. It's not hard work because God is there for you. But here is the problem. Jesus introduces the parable. The parable is introduced with these words, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. These words seem to be implying the opposite. That the answer to our prayers aren't always going to just fall on our laps after five minutes of prayer. In fact, if that were true, then why would he even call us to persevering prayer? We wouldn't need perseverance in our prayer, right? Because God would be like a divine Santa Claus who's literally showering gifts on us the second we ask. Instead, we're told that the point of this parable is to keep persevering in prayer, not to give up so easily or lose heart. 
Now, here is the question. Why, if God does care about us, and He does want to give us the things we need, does He call us to persevere in prayer, to keep praying and not give up? At the heart of resolving this tension is this truth. God does care deeply about our needs, but we still need to persevere in prayer and trust in His timing. In other words, we need the faith to keep on praying, believing that waiting is not a reflection of God's indifference or callousness toward us. In other words, He is not like that wicked judge. But nevertheless, you're going to need patience if you're going to develop a meaningful prayer life. It does require patience. And I want to unpack that tension a little bit for the rest of this message. Because the truth is, I think, most of us don't have the patience to develop a serious prayer life. I think patience drives at the core of the issue. All of this waiting and asking and waiting and asking and waiting and asking, I think the truth is most of us are not willing to put up with that. Instead, our normal operating mode is just to take matters into our own hands, isn't it? Because when we do that, the results are a lot quicker, right? I mean, if you can do something, do it. And if you can fix the problem, fix it. Why wait on God to show up? And here's the truth is there are a lot of areas in life where you ought to do just that. Dallas Willard I actually read this quote in the last time I preached this passage, but I'm going to look at it again. If you have weeds in your garden or a flat tire, it will be better not to just pray that the weeds will die or the tire be fixed. You had better just pull the weeds or fix the tire if you can. Okay? There are expectations that God has on our life for you to take action for your life. Does anybody cut their grass by prayer alone? Does it work? (laughs) If you do, please come to my house once a week, and I will give you 20 bucks each week, okay? Um, Dear God, this relentless grass, this endless battle. Dear Lord, I know you did it last week, but I need your help again. Trim this grass. It's driving me crazy. How about yesterday? Did any of you clear your driveway through prayer alone? Did you keep checking every 30 minutes? to see if your driveway was clear? No. I'm going to guess that every one of you took a shovel or a snowplow and went to your driveway and cleared it yourself, right? You didn't have a prayer meeting saying, Dear Lord, our car cannot get out of the garage. What will we do? We need a miracle. Um, but Willard does go on, and he says this. If you have a friend who is addicted to heroin... However, or lost in the jungles of intellectual faddishness, then whatever else you may do to help him, you had better pray. Not just because fixing him is beyond you, but because it is good that it should be beyond you. In other words, there are some things you cannot fix. And a huge part of the discovery of discipleship is learning your limitations. One of the most important lessons of discipleship is to learn our limits 
in our need for supernatural breakthroughs of prayer. Until we truly learn that lesson, our attempts to fix the problems in our life by our own efforts alone will often cause more harm than good. In other words, you are doing more damage than you are fixing things when you don't understand this truth about how God governs his universe and how this world works and how the human heart works. And as Willard suggests, one of the areas that we are most limited in is our ability to change another person's, to change the human heart. There's a song by this band Coldplay that I really like a lot called Fix You. I don't know if you know that song, but the lyrics go something like this. When you try your best, but you don't succeed. When you get what you want, but not what you need. When you feel so tired, but you can't sleep, stuck in reverse. And the tears come streaming down your face. When you lose something you can't replace. When you love someone, but it goes to waste. Could it be worse? Lights will guide you home and ignite your bones. Then it says, and I will try to fix you. I will try to fix you. This is the anthem of everyone who has ever tried desperately to help someone in trouble through their own efforts. And I think there comes a place in our life where there has to be wisdom to say, I can't fix this. I can't fix this. I can't fix you, no matter how hard I try. Paul Miller says this, Seldom do we pray seriously and thoughtfully for those we love as they deal with their besetting sins. I'm going to pick on husbands for a minute because most men don't pray thoughtfully for their wives. They just whine or withdraw. When they do pray, they often simply want their own lives to be pain-free. Men will work at making money, keeping the yard neat, or helping the kids in sports, but many don't work at one thing or, at, or think about things that last. For example, a husband will rarely ask God for his wife to become more like Jesus. Let's say she is critical of him. When he tries to talk to her about it, she says, I wouldn't be so critical of you if you didn't have so many problems. <laughs> By raising the issue, he just got more criticism. So his heart quietly shuts down. He just doesn't care anymore. She is who she is. She is. So he moves on with life and flips on the television. Without realizing it, he has become cynical about the possibility of real change in his wife. Miller is focusing on marriage, but that same dynamic, I think, plays out in all of our relationships, doesn't it? Every instinct in the human heart drives us to try to change people that we love through our own efforts through our own manipulation. And here's the truth. We have a lot of weapons at our disposal, don't we? We can whine. We can complain. We can nag. We can lecture. We can withhold affection. We can threaten. We can try to instruct and teach. There's a lot at our disposal here to try to fix the problem. But here's the thing is, unless prayer is a part of that formula, often we end up doing more harm than good. And here's the thing is it's sad that even for Christians, despite witnessing the train wreck right in front of your eyes and realizing that no matter how much you're trying, you are not making it better. That person is not changing. It's strange, but even as Christians, it doesn't occur to us to turn to prayer, does it? 
At least not meaningful prayer, maybe a gesture prayer, a token prayer, but persevering, persistent, daily, relentless prayer for that person is not often something that we discover as a part of the relationships that matter in our life. The problem is that turning to prayer doesn't give us the kind of immediate satisfaction that our own actions give us. You know, you can yell at your wife, and you know it's not helping, but it does feel good, doesn't it? Because at least you got to give them a piece of your mind, and I got that off my chest. But as we begin to surrender our relationships to God in prayer, His promise is this. I am at work through those prayers. But here's the problem is, It's not going to happen as fast as you would like once you start surrendering these things to God in prayer. You need to persevere. There is a fight here that's going to go on in prayer much longer than you wish it would. There is a lot of waiting and hand-wringing and struggling and doubting, but that life of prayer requires the faith of perseverance to not give up. Not give up on God and not give up on that person. But here's the thing is, as we begin to bring these relationships into prayer, God has this tendency of doing this remarkable thing of not just beginning to change the person, but even changing us as a part of the problem. You know, I've realized this in my own marriage. When I don't pray for Betty... I slowly come to realize that I see her as the source of all of my problems, you know? Like, whatever is wrong in this world, it's her, you know? Like, if she could just fix herself, our marriage would be great, you know? And often, even when I finally realize that I need to pray, that's the tone of my prayers. Lord, fix her, because she needs fixing. We need a miracle here, God. You and I, we're the same team, but she's on the opposing team, so can you get her on our team? Um... I'm sorry, I'm your pastor, but that's an honest truth, all right? Um, But here's the funny thing is, when I start praying for her, my perspective on her starts to change. And God begins to give me new eyes to see her as God sees her. And I begin to realize some things about myself that I'm very blind to. Why does she react that way so often? Oh, well, maybe it's because of my critical spirit that is judging her. And condemning her. Maybe it's my own ego, my own self-centeredness, my own blindness, my own whining because my needs are not getting met. No wonder her heart is shutting down to me and my attempts to fix her are not working. This is the funny work of God when we begin to pray for the things that matter in our life. Is we think that the answer is very narrow and God says, you have no idea how I'm going to fix this problem. And in truth, you're part of the problem. And so I have to fix you as well. Philip Yancey says, I learned that I cannot fix the people I am praying for. I cannot get everything I want in the time frame I want. I must slow down and wait. I have to present my request in a manner that seems at first like surrender. I give them up to God. And through that act of submission, God can at last begin to grow in me the qualities or fruit that I needed all along. Peace, patience, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
You know, when our children are young, it's not very hard to exert our wills over them, is it? Um, we hold all of the cards. We're big. They're little. You don't want to clean up that mess? No TV. No iPad. Let's see how long you last. Oh, you still don't want to clean up that mess? The wooden spoon is coming out. Oh, now look who wants to clean up their mess, right? I mean, that's, that's parenting when kids are little. You exert an enormous amount of control over them. But here's the thing, is as your children get older into their teenage years, it doesn't quite work so easily anymore, does it? It's very humbling as a parent to realize this power shift that occurs as our children approach adulthood. And of course, you can react by cracking down even harder on their rebellious spirit, and you're just going to drive them further and further away, aren't you? Here's the thing is, your older kids are going to go on journeys that you can't go with them on, okay? They're going to end up in places that you cannot follow. And it's horrible to feel so impotent as a parent. And yet, I think what God is calling us to is to pray. That's the greatest gift that you can give your children, is prayer. I think this is the whole arc of life, is when you're younger, you're very optimistic about your ability to change people. Like, I'm good at it, you know? Like, I'm a good, I'm a master manipulator, you know? Like, I can get people to do the things that I want. But the longer you live life, you begin to realize how limited you are in truly changing another person. And it's at that point, in that hopeless moment, that you realize, I need to pray. Give them to God in prayer. I want to ask you that simply this morning. Are there people in your life that you are trying to fix? Are there relationships that make you feel hopeless? Give them to God in prayer. Not just a moment of prayer, but persevering prayer. When we surrender our relationships to God in prayer, it rarely has that immediacy of our own actions. And so we need the faith to believe that God does hear those prayers, that he is at work even when we can't see it, that supernaturally he is moving in ways that are beyond us. Here's one more thing as I close out the message, and it's this. I think one of the big struggles with prayer is that we're not really sure what are legitimate prayers and what are illegitimate prayers. In other words, this issue of perseverance can play out something like this. What if God is not answering my prayer request because I'm asking for the wrong thing? Have you ever struggled with that? Like, what if the problem is I'm asking for all the wrong things and that's why God is not answering them? Uh, in that case, wouldn't it be wrong to persevere in that prayer? Um, and look at what James 4.3 says. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Like, clearly, it is possible to pray for the wrong things. Or it's even possible to pray for the right things with the wrong motives. Okay? James makes that clear. So here's uh, the other, I think, stumbling block in persevering prayer is how do we know when our prayers are not being answered because we're asking for wrong things or when we simply need to persevere in prayer and push through those barriers and keep fighting in that prayer? 
you know, here's some very legitimate questions. Is it okay for me to pray for a job promotion? Is it? I mean, is that a prayer that pleases God, is to ask for a job promotion? Can I pray for a bigger house? You know, we're outgrowing this one as the family is growing larger, and, you know, can I pray for a bigger house? Can I pray for a vacation in the Bahamas? I always want to go to the Bahamas. Is that wrong? Is that sinful? Can I pray for a cute boyfriend? I'm lonely. I want to say this. I think sometimes we worry so much about praying about the wrong things, the not-so-godly things, that it trips us up so that we don't pray at all. And this is what I actually want to offer to you. Let God know your desires in prayer, even if you're not sure they are appropriate, okay? In other words, on the front end, don't worry about it so much, all right? All I'm saying is this. If you have a desire and it is real and it's in your heart, ask for it. Let's start there. Start there, okay? I'm not saying that's where you're going to end, but the reason I say this is this. First and foremost, Prayer needs to be honest communication with God, okay? It needs to be honest. This is what we see throughout the pages of the Psalms, isn't it? People honestly pouring out their hearts to God. Kill them, Lord. Kill my enemies. I hate them all, right? I mean, you see prayers like this all over the Psalms, you know? And you go, is that biblical? Like, because I always wanted to do that, but I didn't know I could. You know, like, can I pray for the death of the people I hate? (laughs) It's in the Bible. This is just honesty, raw and unfiltered, being poured out in the Psalms. I hate them, God. Kill them. Okay? I think Jesus expressed that honesty in Gethsemane just before he went to the cross. In Luke chapter 22, verse 41 to 42. And he withdrew from them and about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Just before he went to the cross, Jesus asked his father to, quote, remove this cup from him. In other words, I don't want to go to the cross. I know I said I would do it, but I'm having second thoughts, and I'm terrified. It's, I'm at the eve of my crucifixion, and I don't want to go through this. I don't. So God, make another way if it's at all possible. Now, here's the thing. is Jesus knew there was no other way. He knew he had to go to the cross, but he still asked it. He still asked it in a moment of honesty and terror. I don't want to do this, God. I don't want to do this. Um, But we should also pray for the things we desire, whether they're right or wrong, because through our prayers, we invite God into the process. That's the key, okay? Here's the truth is, um, I think there are desires that are in our heart that we don't pray about because we don't want God to mess with them. You know what I mean? We, we don't pray about some of the deepest longings and desires in our heart because it's a control issue. Like if I pray about it and surrender it to God, then he may not give it to me. But if I just work really hard, I can buy it. You know? Like I can make it happen. I don't need prayer in this. It'll work. You see... Even as Jesus prayed, take this cup away from me, he also prayed, not my will, but yours be done. You see, when you start the prayer, you don't know. 
God, all I can tell you is this is what I want. I really, really want this. I want it badly. And I don't even know whether this is a good thing for me or not. And yet, I'm surrendering it to you. I want this, but I want you to speak into it. And I want you to help me with this desire. Let's take, for example, that job promotion scenario. Is it wrong to pray for that promotion at work? Well, it may or may not be. It all depends on you, doesn't it, right? So you can pray for that job promotion, and God may very well give you that job promotion out of his love for you. He may do that. But as you begin to pray about that job promotion, with an open and humble spirit, it becomes a conversation with God. And he may reveal some things in your heart that you need to deal with. Why do I want this job promotion? so badly? Is it because I've attached my worth to my career success? Is it because I think money is going to solve all of my problems? What will be different if I get this promotion? Why? What am I going to do with that extra income? You see, by being honest with our desire for that promotion and asking for it in prayer, you are inviting the voice of God to speak into it. And like I said, I think God has actually got the delights to give us good gifts. And sometimes he's going to bless you by answering those prayers. But also sometimes it's about dealing with deeper heart issues. But that's the beauty of prayer, is that we invite the Lordship of Christ to speak into it. This is the dynamic that I interestingly experienced last, earlier this year when I had the whole retina, retinal detachment issue in my left eye was, you know, two, three failed procedures, and now even the retina specialist kind of thinking like, you might lose your sight here. And um, I tell you this, I started praying pretty desperately for the restoration of my vision. But here was the end. I don't know if you remember that, but for like a month straight, like I had to lay like this, like on my side in one direction, like face down, prostrate. I felt like it was God saying, like, you need to pray. You know, so I just, like, stay in this position, like, all the time. It's like, humble yourself. I will humble you, you know. Um, so while I was like that, in that position, like, 24-7 for, like, a month, I was praying desperately. I don't want to lose my vision, God. I don't. Because that one week where I had the gas bubble, and then I think part, part of the problem was I was trying to come back to the pulpit too quickly. But as I was praying about sight, this is the weird question that began to dominate is I sense the Spirit saying, why do you want your sight so badly? And it was this weird conversation that began with God is, why, do you, why should I give you your sight? And I was thinking like, because I want to see. Is that so bad? That, like, why do you have to ask me that? Because I don't want to be blind. I want to see. Everyone wants to see. And then I felt like God was saying like, why do you want to see, you know? And that week when I had the gas bulb in my eye and I had about 70-80% of my vision occluded, I was preparing the sermon that week by holding the commentaries like this in that one little corner of my visual field where I could read. And I realized this during that period is, if I lose my vision, man, it's going to have an impact on my calling to teach. And I realized at that moment, that's why I want my sight. That's why. Not so that... I can watch television, <laughs> but so that I can live out this teaching ministry that God desires. And it really sent me in a pretty deep journey in my heart of, 
Why is it I want good health? Why is it that I want these things from the Lord? And it really was actually a, a moment of personal revival for me as I began to receive that restored vision and thinking, this is why I have eyesight. This is why he gave me eyes to see, is to use my eyes for his glory so that I can read, and through that reading, I can teach God's people and be a part of the work that he has called me to. That is the gift of sight. And now it's weird, but every time, there's always a moment in every single sermon I've prepared since then that there's this little blip that goes, thank you for my vision, you know? Thank you that I can see, that I can read your word and prepare your word for God's people. And I want to invite you to this journey of prayer. I, I want to suggest to you that you do worship a God who delights to give you the things that you ask for. I, I wasn't sure if I wanted to share this. I kind of has that. I didn't even put it in my notes, but I don't know. I just feel convicted to share it. But just in case it's only about the big things, there, I'll just share this little thing, okay? Is, uh, there was actually a period some years back when I was just praying to God while we were in Africa, saying, you know, like, uh, I would see all these people riding motorcycles up and down the dirt roads in Capsuar where we work. work. And I remember just offering God this prayer going like, God, I really do miss riding motorcycles. So I rode motorcycles all through high school and college. And I said, I just wish there was a way I could ride motorcycles again. And I don't even know why I'm praying that, God, but I was hoping that I could buy a motorcycle to ride. I wanted a dirt bike and ride through those hills. I think that was sort of my secret selfish plan that I was concocting there. But it was weird. That same year, we went back home for furlough, and a, fr- a good friend of mine, in the time that we were in Africa, actually got in the business of buying used motorcycles, repairing them, and flipping them, and selling them on eBay or Craigslist or whatever. And totally unsolicited, almost like the day after I got back to America, he calls me and says, hey, Steve, do you want a motorcycle for the summer? He literally said that. I said, really? And he said, yeah, I've been repairing motorcycles as a side business, and I just thought I would give you one if you want it for the summer. So that whole summer, I got a motorcycle, and I had the biggest, silliest grin on my face. I was riding that thing, saying, thank you, Lord, like, thank you, as I was zipping all over on that motorcycle. Was it prayer? I don't know. I'm going to say it's prayer. I don't know. You say, well, that's so dumb. You know, is that kingdom thing? You know, like, oh, swippy-doo, you got to ride a motorcycle. How does that accomplish God's work? I don't think it accomplishes God's work. But it was just a little silly prayer of something that I wanted. And I gave it to God, and he gave it to me. Now, I hesitate to share that because that, that kind of message veers so easily into God being a Santa Claus for us and saying, well, I want this, I want that, I want this. I'm not saying that, okay? But... I think what Jesus is saying here is this, is there is such a lack of prayer among my people. And you don't receive because you don't ask. And, you know, sometimes we think like, I I hear those stories. You know, I even hear the stories you're telling today and going like, well, it's because you're, you know, like you are a missionary and God was giving you a reward because you went to Africa, you know, and who does that, you know? So, but that kind of stuff doesn't happen in my life, you know? Like, I don't get those motorcycle summers, you know, just, they just fall in my lap, you know? Or I hear these stories of people who needed $1,000 and there was that envelope with $1,000 in the mailbox. Like, that doesn't happen to me. And, you know, it's like, I don't have that gift of prayer. You know, I just don't. I think this, when I look at this story, And we think about, who is it whose prayers are heard by God? 
There's no reference here to some people are gifted with the gift of prayer. Or there are certain people that are favored by me and I love them. And, I, and then if you're one of my, you know, if you're the middle child in God's family, you'll get one of two things, but keep trying. But there's some special favorite children I love. There's nothing like that in the parable here. It seems like what Jesus is simply saying this. Who are the ones that receive prayer? It, are the, it is the ones who identify themselves with this widow, who are desperate and understand their desperate situation. To say, without God, I am nothing. I have no other recourse. I have nothing else but God here. And so I plead my case to him day and night because he is my savior. He is my deliverer. Let's pray. I want to invite you, like I said a minute ago, to this invitation of God to the life of prayer. Maybe you feel like you're living a pretty powerless life, a frustrating life. Maybe you feel like you're just spinning your wheels. So that song says, stuck in reverse. Um, And there are things that God expects us to do within our power. He has actually gifted us in some amazing ways to move and act and take action in our world. But there is also a lot of stuff that you can't fix in your life. And here's the thing. You can crash and burn pretty deeply before you really learn that lesson of your own limitations. What God says is, you know, this requires prayer. This requires prayer. But the problem with going that route of prayer is, let's be honest, sometimes it's so frustrating. Just endless waiting and saying, God, are you even listening? Do you even care? Does this even matter to you? And so Jesus says at the very end of this, when I come back, will I find faith on this earth? Who are the ones that will be faithful in prayer when I return? My prayer is that it would be every one of us here in this room to experience a supernatural life that can only be explained by the hand of God because of saints who are on their knees crying out day and night without giving up. Lord, give us justice. Help us in this matter. Let's just come to him in prayer right now and maybe you can pray a simple prayer saying, God, I don't think I have the faith for this. Like I can throw out that token prayer just to feel like I've done my due diligence to to include you. But here's the truth, God, is after one week, after one month, there's no way. I just, I'm going to take action and I'm going to just try to fix it on my own or I'm just going to shut off my heart and I'm going to move on and I'm going to become cynical. And God says, don't do that. Don't do that. Soften your heart and have faith. Have faith that I am a God who delights to give good things to his children and persevere in prayer. Let's just pray like that as our worship team comes to lead us in a time of response.